What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly. All month long, The Ringer will be breaking down 2018's highs and lows in music, pop culture, sports, TV, and film. Some of the things we've hit so far are the best TV show episodes and the best rap albums of the year. And this week, we are writing about the best performances and the 10 best action movies of 2018. Plus, we'll be reacting to both the Golden Globes and Grammy nominations on the site. You can check all of these things out on TheRinger.com. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Kate Nibbs. Welcome to Damage Control on the Channel 33 Network, a podcast where we unpack what upsets, excites, and divides us in popular culture. It's been a tough month for the media, including a mass layoff at Mike, a once up-and-coming company that billed itself as a news site for millennials. Mike had a large staff, deluxe offices in the New World Trade Center, and a cozy relationship with Facebook. This month, Mike fired all but two of their staff and are now being sold to Bustle. We're going to talk about what this means for the industry in general. But first, porn. This is the porn app. This week, Tumblr said it's banning nudity from its iconically porn-filled website. We're going to talk about Tumblr's porn problem and what it says about the evolution of internet culture and social media culture and the gentrification of the web. Meanwhile, it's just been announced that the website Tumblr will be banning porn starting on December 17th. And if you do not know what Tumblr is, you have until December 17th to find out. Because Let's talk about Tumblr. Once an early social media stronghold for millennials, now a website in jeopardy. And that's because Tumblr has a porn problem. I should specify it has a child porn problem. So in November, Apple evicted Tumblr from the App Store after finding child pornography on the site and finding that Tumblr was having a hard time filtering child pornography out of its adult content otherwise. So Tumblr started removing the offending content, and it took another step. As of December 17th, Tumblr is banning all nudity, from the site and a sort of desperate last-ditch attempt to salvage the website's commercial potential and its reputation. So to be clear, though, Tumblr's users don't all see Tumblr's porn problem as a problem per se. They say nudity and adult content are legitimate and they're sort of like these definitive important components of various subcultures on Tumblr. And Tumblr users have pretty strong opinions about this stuff, about nudity, sex, and the freedom to depict these things. So Tumblr was really one of the last mainstream places on the internet where people would come to talk openly about sex and sexuality. I want to quote from a recent piece at BuzzFeed talking about this, about the, the culture of Tumblr. Tumblr sex sites created spaces for all kinds of people who don't have access to sexual community elsewhere wrote Stephen Thrasher. It has always been a safe haven for young people exploring and expressing their sexuality. There's tasteful erotica, supportive places for people to post their own bodies, including those that don't look like typical porn bodies, and to consume and engage with the wide swath of human sexual experience that can't be replicated 
by logging on to X Hamster and being greeted with a blast of extremely aggressive heterosexual facials. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> um, great imagery there. There's another <laughs> very vivid writing. <laughs> right, right. If he, it, to summarize the importance of Tumblr, or at least the, the importance of Tumblr to a lot of people, there's another good quote from uh, a piece in Motherboard. It's sort of a comfort that despite most of the internet being colonized by anodyne corporate platforms, people are still incredibly horny online. Right. And so this is, this is, this is, uh, these are journalists and users who are writing about adult content on Tumblr in general. They're not talking about child porn. They're just talking about the fact that there's lots of explicit nude images and like, erotic art on Tumblr. And those are the things that are like important to the culture of Tumblr. That's like whenever I hear people talk about Tumblr, like in the past few years, it's been porn related or just like something gross and weird. But uh, it was a very popular use case. Right. That's actually really strange to me. We we can get into that in a second. But Mm -hmm. the fact that there is at this stage in Tumblr, this reflexive association of porn Mm -hmm. in Tumblr when that was not always the case. But we can we can get to that. So, like I said, the users on Tumblr weren't necessarily the people who saw um, the permissiveness of adult content on Tumblr as a problem. It's really like they're corporate overlords, right? Because like Tumblr is at one point owned by Yahoo. Um, is now owned by Verizon. And it seems like Tumblr is having like chronic profitability problems and, and like getting banned from the app store is not like a great. No, that's very bad. Yeah, that's, that's a, it's very bad. And it's very bad for an app that has never really made the most sense if you're just looking at it in commercial terms of like, how does this app generate money? Considering that it's like a free website mm-hmm. for teens. <laughs> Or largely for, like, younger people who, you know. And it it was, like, late to, like, advertising. Is it teens now that are using Tumblr? I feel like it's, like, 32-year-old sex-positive activists and people who, like, really want Sonic and Tails to kiss. (laughs) Right. Well, the the Sonic and Tails part, I feel like, was always a part of Tumblr. It just sort of spiraled into into extremes from there. Yeah. But, yeah, so it's it's this weird thing where, like, the commercial viability of Tumblr Mm -hmm. feels fundamentally at odds with what the users of Tumblr or like a lot of users of Tumblr think the site should be and think the site definitively is. Tumblr isn't just a commercial product. It's a, it's a social space. It's where people, where a lot of people forge online identities and they form communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I read a quote from one Tumblr user, a woman named Kat, who talked to Vice about the nudity ban. So the passage here, Kat E., who runs a not-safe-for-work Rick and Morty-themed blog, says, I'm disappointed. Not because it's another website banning adult content. That I can handle. It's how they're banning it that's truly disappointing. Painting adult content as harmful, unsafe, and unwelcome is really insulting. It's almost as if we're getting punished alongside genuinely harmful people. So that's a lot to unpack. And I mean literally unpack as in we have to unpack the child pornography from the other adult content (laughs) um, on Tumblr. But I do want to go back to what you referenced, Kate, which is like this reflexive association of Tumblr. and It's the one website. It's the one big social media platform that I think people just instinctively associate with like its most lewd images. Yeah, 
I guess Twitter still allows nudity, but it, it just doesn't function as well for people who are looking for that sort of thing. Right, right. Um, well, Twitter, like, the thing I find weird about Tumblr's reputation is that, and maybe it's just because I don't, I haven't used Tumblr a lot in recent years, mm-hmm. but I see plenty of porn on Twitter, frankly. And I see definitely, like, it, mostly because I follow a lot of, like, weird I get DM'd it sometimes it's very excuse me yeah (laughs) oh no part of being a woman on the internet yeah I'm sorry that's okay that's garbage I don't really see a lot of porn on Twitter though oh okay I I definitely I'm always very like slightly taken aback when there's just like boobs in my feed yeah Um, (laughs) right but yeah so like it is important to distinguish between why Tumblr got banned from the app store that's a real problem it was not it was not removing child pornography in in an efficient way. It needed to be better. And then what it's done now is like a crazy overcorrection right. situation where it's like actually nothing sexual on here anymore, which seems like so overblown. It's like, no, just take away the heinous criminal images. Don't throw the bathwater out with the sexy baby. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, I guess what I'm getting at, though, is like, okay, imagine there's an overnight controversy where you wake up and Twitter is besieged by a proliferation of child pornography, Mm -hmm. right? If Twitter's response to that was, okay, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. We're going to ban all adult images. Mm -hmm. We're going to moderate for and ban all adult images. In Twitter's case, I don't think anybody would care because it's like, I just can't imagine there being a backlash against Twitter for that policy because I don't think that the communities and the images are essential to the cultures of Twitter. I just don't think nudity is like... I think I think people who use it for those purposes would be pissed. Right, but I guess what I'm asking is like, would those people amount to the sort of backlash that we're seeing against Tumblr? Well, I think it's just that Twitter is a lot more popular than Tumblr. It has a lot more use cases. Tumblr just has a really thriving adult content right. community that makes up a larger percentage of like the content that it disseminates. Right. Yeah. Or even communities, because it seems like there I should there, there are, are a lot of, of different yeah. types of porn on <laughs> Tumblr. Uh to be I feel clear. bad for all those people who just want to post horny things about Rick and Morty because they where are they going to go that's not like the sort of thing obviously the internet has no shortage of porn like anyone who's just looking for porn isn't going to have a problem finding it but like people who are interested in very specific types of adult content are going to have to reestablish their communities elsewhere and there's not that many places for them to go because you know Instagram doesn't allow nudity Facebook doesn't. I'm sure there are closed groups on Facebook where this stuff is flourishing because, like, it's just impossible to moderate closed groups. Um, But I think one of the sort of reasons why people are so upset about this is because it's just another example of the Internet sort of losing its stranger pockets and becoming all homogenized and, and, like, optimized for like mass appeal instead of appeal to these niche subcultures. Obviously, anyone who's not a demon wants 
there not to be child pornography on the internet. It's just that a lot there's a lot being lost by the decision to ban adult content writ large. Also, wait, can we just talk for a second about the only good thing that's come out of this is that it's introduced like one of the most ridiculous phrases I've ever heard into the public, which is female presenting nipples. <laughs> nice. Explain no, elaborate. No one's that's, gonna know so, no one's so gonna Tumblr, know what you're talking when about. Uh, announced that it was banning adult content and it sort of laid out what specifically was allowed and not allowed and it said that female presenting nipples are no longer allowed right that's which a- really has has provoked some thoughts because I don't know what female presenting nipples are <laughs> um I think you're right I think that the tumbler tumbler is this sort of rare last unscrubbed corner of the internet in a certain way. I mean, I, look, there are, like, forums. Yeah. There are, str- there are strange corners of the internet, but I'm talking about in terms of, like, big-name social media brands. Tumblr is sort of, like, the last room in the house to get cleaned. <laughs> That's a good metaphor. But it's it's also strange to me because it's, like, I feel like a theme when you and I talk on this podcast, whenever we're talking about, like, big tech companies Mm -hmm. is moderation. Mm -hmm. And we're usually, I feel like in most other instances, we are typically like clamoring for some sort of moderation. Like we're talking about Facebook and we're talking about how Facebook should do a better job of like finding like Russian hackers and bots and and fake news and stuff like that. But we're talking about Twitter and we're talking about Twitter struggles to like or not even struggles like Twitter's refusal to try to figure out who the neo Nazis are on Twitter and mm-hmm. get rid of them, and like you could describe those things ideally mm-hmm. as part of an effort to clean up the internet and make it less weird. Like Alex Jones getting kicked off of Facebook is an effort to make the internet less weird, and it it's just strange to me that in Tumblr's case it seems like. I'm inclined to to treat Tumblr with a different and, in fact, opposite standard that I think of Facebook and Twitter. Well, I wouldn't say my standards are different platform by platform. I think that moderation is a really complex topic. Like, it's very tricky because I do think that Facebook and Twitter in particular have done a lot of damage to society by refusing to moderate certain types of content. That said... I've always been uncomfortable with, like, blanket statements about moderation. Basically, like, it's moderation is super, super tricky and hard and difficult. And I don't think it's contradictory to feel ambivalent and conflicting thoughts about how to approach it. Yeah. Like, I really – I think that's n- a normal response because it's really hard to wrap your head around. And it is super important to think seriously about how much control you want these companies to have over what you're allowed to say and what you're allowed to express. It always seems like these companies are bad at moderation. Like when they they, finally take up the mantle of doing it. They're all terrible. They all suck at it. But I must say, like, it's so hard. I I do sympathize because, like, to be good at moderation, that hasn't happened yet because it's really hard when you're at this scale and there's, like, Millions of people expressing themselves on your platform, it's hard to come up with a coherent theory of how to, like, police that in a way that, like, 
allows for free speech but doesn't like disseminate false information and cause genocides. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, totally. It's extreme. Yeah. So they need to do a better job, but I do. It's only fair to say that the, the task is insanely difficult. Do you buy the, I feel like a lot of columns written about Tumblr are all positing that, well, Tumblr's banning porn. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Tumblr is done. It's, like, it's going to go. Like, do you buy that? I feel like Tumblr has been dying for a long time anyways. Yeah. Like, I think if this had happened to a prospering web property, it wouldn't be—it would be a different story. I don't even know if Tumblr would have taken these actions had it not been in trouble and desperate. Right. Like, it's it's been sort of waning in influence. And, you know, David Carpet's founder left. The sale to Yahoo was really— not it was a bad fit verizon's also a bad fit it strikes me as odd because for all the doom saying about how like tumblr might be toast because of it or like how they might just terminally alienate a lot of their user communities i remember tumblr before it was a porn website you know what i mean like i, I remember it and loved it like i had like a tumblr which i sadly deleted that i used to like blog about my adventures abroad. Right. Totally. That's it. That's totally it. <laughs> and I don't think it's smart or fair to pin any one reason on why Tumblr dies, if it even dies. Right. Totally. Totally. <laughs> it is kind of strange to me that Apple could just sort of wreck Tumblr's shit. Just like wreck Tumblr's whole shit and like maybe bring the whole thing crashing down. It is messed up that Apple has that much power. I think that Tumblr could have found a way out of this that wasn't banning all adult content. Like, it could have just done a better job of moderating its child pornography. There's um, a lot of the major social networks work with an organization that sort of provides a sort of, like, AI child porn filtering thing. I've written about it before, so I really should remember it, it better. But it's like NECMAC, like the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Right, okay. Yeah. Like, I don't know if Tumblr was just not using that, but that's sort of how, like, Facebook uses it, Microsoft uses it, Google uses it. It's sort of the uh, baseline to, like, make sure you're getting child porn off. And if they would have, like, tried to use that, that would have been a good first step. I think they went way too far. And it is pretty disturbing that this one company can sort of make or break whether a platform succeeds or not. And that it has like a there's like morality involved. It's like imposed morality. I'll put it like this. Apple booted Tumblr, Mm -hmm. but Apple also booted Gab. You know what I mean? Like, that's sort of what I mean by how complicated and ambivalent I I feel about a lot of this stuff. It's like Apple has this outsized power. You know, these big companies, Google, Apple, like they have this outsized power and them using it to ban child porn or discourage child porn, I guess, is is good. Yeah. (laughs) If they were using it to ban Nazis, that would be good. Yeah. But yeah, it, it seems to me as much about Apple's authority in this situation as the fact that Tumblr was so intimidated by Apple that it chose an overcorrective policy is the thing that underscores what's so worrisome about it. Mm -hmm. 
because banning all adult content is a way more that's just a way more fraught decision than like banning a messaging app that Nazis exclusively use, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think the outsized authority of big tech companies has created a lot of cultural problems on the internet and it's created commercial problems that I think we're going to get into in our next segment about Mike.com. Yes, because Mike.com is another digital company whose fate has been sort of seemingly uh, decided or if not decided, at least heavily shaped by a tech giant. Yeah, <laughs> you're uh, your founder and editor at Mike, which is a magazine, online magazine for millennials. So uh, what is your special angle on, on millennials? What kind of stories do you choose to, to get to the millennials? Yeah, so we're focused on telling the stories that young people care about that are on substantive important issues uh, and that resonate deeply across all these new distribution channels. So you can think of us like the next New York Times, the next CNN for, the, for our generation. Um. In 2011, two high school friends founded a website they called Policy Mike. It targeted millennials and focused on having young writers blog about politics. Over the years, they shortened that name to Mike, and they expanded the company's scope to include over 100 staffers. They landed high-profile interviews, including one with Barack Obama when he was the president, and they raised over $52 million from investors by 2017. It was a big deal. For several years, they were the potential next big thing in media. However, Mike's success was closely tied to Facebook. Facebook was its primary way of getting an audience. A lot of its web traffic came from viral Facebook stories. It tended to optimize its headlines with the intention of grabbing eyes from Facebook users. It was basically a company propped up by its success on Facebook. And the company was very, very good at getting its content to go viral on Facebook. So when the social media company encouraged publishers to go all in on video, Mike pivoted to video hard. And it let go of many of its writing-focused staffers and bulked up its video offerings. You know, it had a lot of its employees doing Facebook Live videos, um, making, like, long, detailed scripted videos. It was really, really trying to nail that pivot to video. Uh, it also leased a fancy and expensive office space in One World Trade, and it seemed like it was working, but the strategy ended up failing. Word that Mike had money troubles leaked earlier this year, and this month the company laid off all but two of its staff. The only remaining staff are its two founders, and it was sold for $5 million to Brian Goldberg's Bustle. This is a the company. Bustle that, Empire. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the nascent <laughs> the Bustle Media bustle. Empire. <laughs> and so this was a company that was once valued at like over $100 million. Yeah. So to, to have it be sold for $5 million is just a disaster. And the story of Mike involves a lot of different strands of modern media fuckery. So I feel like it's very important that we discuss this because it's like a parable of what not to do as a young digital media company. It shows how precarious the fate of independent media companies are, no matter how much money they raise. Sometimes because of how much money they raise, because then they become beholden to VC expectations and sort of chase this impossible dream of like scaling up and up and up. It shows the dangers of relying too heavily on Facebook for reaching an audience and 
it demonstrates how much control Facebook can have over one news outlet's fate. The sort of fatal blow to Mike came after Facebook decided to cancel a video partnership. So I'm going to read a quote from Bill Gruskin, a professor at Columbia Journalism School. He said, Most newsrooms have come to regret making hiring investment decisions based on the whims of a company that really doesn't care that much about journalism. Harsh, but not as harsh as Mike's own union, which released a statement after the layoff calling the company a new low in corporate mendacity. Okay, so for listeners, I think it's really important to establish what Mike, formerly known as Policy Mike, was. So, Kate, do you remember Kim Kardashian's visit to the Trump White House a few months ago? I stumbled across the story of Alice Marie Johnson. She's been behind bars for 22 years. The only person that can grant her clemency would be the president. The White House has agreed to set up a meeting. I know we have one shot to plead our case, knowing that someone's life is in my hands. It's a really scary feeling. So Kim Kardashian was talking to Trump about Alice Marie Johnson, who is a woman who had spent a couple of decades in prison for a nonviolent drug offense. And she was lobbying for Trump to pardon Alice Marie Johnson so she could get released. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge thing, both because, you know, there's a photo of Kim and Trump meeting. This is also related to Kanye's meetings with Trump. It's related to Kim Kardashian apparently being a prison reform advocate. But this whole story of Kim Kardashian meeting with Trump. And getting clemency and, for Alice right, Johnson. Right. Which is great. Right. That story, though, which takes place over the course of a, a year and some change, that story begins with the Mike video. That story begins with Kim Kardashian seeing a video online that probably happened to be produced Facebook. by Mike, probably yeah. on Facebook, that Mike had produced about Alice Marie Johnson. And it's sort of the style of the video is there's no spoken. So there's no spoken narration of the news piece. It's all sort of these these dynamic subtitles that are playing out or a footage of Alice Marie Johnson. And it's this very somber music. And it's just this it's a news piece that's also a mood piece. And that's sort of to me like late phase Mike, that's what they did. They, when you say they, they leaned into the, they, they pivoted into video, it's like they pivoted into video, but they were trying to toe the line between like riding that industry trend, but also doing like, I guess you'd call them like video essays. Mm -hmm. And so the Alice Marie Johnson video is like a testament to the period when it made sense. It maybe made sense for, for Mike to be like, yeah, we could just pr produce videos like this on like the biggest social media platform in the world. And like, that's where we'll find our audience. Mm -hmm. And that seems maybe innocuous enough, except for the fact that like every publication we've worked for and also Mike is forced to engage with what Facebook, the company wants and how Facebook users behave. Right. And that sucks because it's like a bunch of publications from like The Ringer to like The New York Times all scratching their heads and trying to figure out how to game like one social media platform's mm -hmm. system of like attention, its economy of attention. And then it's that frustration is multiplied by the fact that Facebook 
seems to change yeah, <laughs> very rapidly. Do you remember that story that came out earlier this year, sort of looking at how Facebook really inflated the numbers for how many people were even watching its videos? Right. Like the whole the whole idea that you needed to pivot to video to get eyes was sort of based on a lie that Facebook told. Right. And because Facebook is Facebook and we're all sort of just on the outside trying to look in, like there's there's no real accountability for that. Like the fact that we found out that, oh, wow, a lot of the information that we had, that, that companies had that they were trying to, to strategize around wasn't even like real yeah. and like a single company made it. You know what I mean? It, it, it sort of makes it hard for any company whether it's Mike or whether it's whoever, mm-hmm. to think about, like, what they're supposed to be doing to, like, be popular on Facebook. I mean, I really see Mike's story as a cautionary tale about relying too heavily on Facebook as a media company. Because before they pivoted to video, they were already seeing a lot of their web traffic dropping. And that's because I think it was last year... Basically, I believe it was 2017, Facebook announced that it was going to deprioritize like quote unquote clickbait and news articles and then prioritize posts from people that uh, were in like people that people actually knew. Right, right. And um, local news and stuff like that. So basically when Facebook rejiggered its algorithm, it fucked Mike. And instead of sort of looking for other ways to gain an audience outside of Facebook, Mike went and just listened to what Facebook told it about what it could do to sort of regain that audience. Right. And now it belongs to Brian Goldberg. <laughs> right, right. And it's weird because Mike is not the only Mike is not the only media company that's been responsive to Facebook, but it's just Mike was the extreme case of a company that was like Oh, we're going all in. Like the, it, yeah. it reminds me, uh, like the other cautionary tale for Facebook is upworthy. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. yeah. And TBT. TBT. <laughs> and I, I'm sorry, I'm not laughing because I feel bad for everyone who worked at Upworthy and got laid off. It's very sad. I'm just laughing about TBT. Right. It's just yeah. Upworthy was a long t- like Upworthy is the it's almost like the biblical cautionary tale. That's how long ago Upworthy feels. You know, it's like Upworthy seems like it should have been an example to more websites of like how not to go about sustaining long-term <laughs> viability. It worked for a brief period of time really well though. But they had one they had one very specific strategy for promoting stories. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like Facebook is a dynamic enough company and also not a very transparent company, so it's like you could have the brightest minds in your company spend a year coming up with a strategy that's designed to successfully game Facebook, but then Facebook makes some inane tweak to how its newsfeed appears and you just wasted a year and yeah. like however much money you paid all of your <laughs> ad salespeople. One thing I wanted to talk to you about is so did you read when BuzzFeed's Jonah Pretty was interviewed by the New York Times recently, and he sort of discussed the idea of a multi-company merger yeah. as a sort of remedy to, to like, fight Facebook and Google's duopoly of the Internet. Yeah, the imagery I got from, from that was basically, like, the Avengers, but for media companies. Yeah, yeah. What were the companies? The, like, Freddie wanted to assemble, like, the New York Times, 
BuzzFeed. I don't think New York Times. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, but um, Vice, Vox. I don't know a bunch. Eight, One, like yeah, ten, like ten different unrelated companies into a single. Yeah, and and when I read that, I was like, mm, "That's never going to happen." Like, cute idea. But now I'm kind of thinking that Brian Goldberg read that and was like, "I'm going to do that with. I'm going to scoop up all the failing media companies and like make them strong." Again, by unifying them into one, like, big Papa blog. How do you—Papa <laughs> blog. That's it. Papa blog. Because now he—so he has Bustle, which he's always had. He founded it. Um, he's got Romper, which is, like, the mom website version of Bustle. Elite Daily. Gawker. And now Mike. That's, like, a lot of—he's, he's like, making a little— Infinity Stones, right? Yeah. He's doing the the Thanos thing. He's making the big Papa blog against <laughs> the Papa blog to fight uh, Facebook. Do you think this idea of mergers as a way to fight the duopoly makes any sense? No, of course I don't. I don't. But the thing is, I can't like anyone else. I I can't outthink. I still can't wrap my head around Facebook and its reach and its size. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I obviously get why media companies care about, like, Facebook as this portal mm-hmm. to just, like, massive user engagement. I get it. But I think even things that Zuckerberg has said about, like, media companies and, like, Things Zuckerberg has said about media companies and their their feelings about Facebook and advertisers, they just sound hostile. Like, Zuckerberg himself just sounds hostile to media in a way that, like, I'm not going to look to that guy and be like, he's going to be a partner for me. If I'm, like, media head Justin Charity, I'm not going to look to Mark Zuckerberg and be like, that's a guy who I can sort of work with to build long-term sustainability for my company and live happily ever after. He's not the guy. He's the wrong guy. He does not like media, I feel but, like. But do you think that how do you succeed in media without engaging with Facebook? So you don't believe that the idea of a merger makes much sense. I don't either. But what's the way around it? You make really Solve beautiful the media. Solve the podcasts. media, Justin. You just make just the most <laughs> gripping podcast content. Yeah, Mike was called Mike and it didn't have podcasts. That's crazy. That's so wild to That's be, a yes. That's opportunity. Yeah, Mike. Come on, Mike. Mike um, podcast. Trillion dollar, boom. <laughs> we were talking before about how Mike, like, at, around the time of its founding, mm-hmm. one, it had a different name. It was Policy Mike. And two, it was just a very different website than what it grew into. I knew someone who was like a very early policy Mike writer. What, oh, what did they write about specifically? What was their beat? Um, Like women's rights stuff. She actually works, her name's Elizabeth Plank. She's like a Vox personality now. Okay. Yeah. But she was like an OG policy Mike person. What kind of, so what style of writing? Because I, I associate that era of policy like Mike personal, with blogging. It was, yeah, it was blogging. Right. It was bloggy. And that sort of like... Even even that, that transition from Policy Mike being a very bloggy, um, like, it, it was obviously, like, going for newsy, smart content, but it still wanted to have the, I felt like a lot of that content felt very capsule and bloggy. And 
you know, obviously they transition to producing like video essays and that's very different. Well, but, you could also like anyone could post on Policy Mike when it right. started. So it really was a blogging platform. Right. And that just makes me think of our conversation about Tumblr, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's just like these websites that were way more, they were way more friendly to user generated content instead of letting users determine the fate of the website mm-hmm. and the the flavors of the website. And I don't know. I think that's the that's what seems lost in this ecosystem now where any news website, entertainment website, does not exist with that sort of hyper-localized, bloggy sense of, like, what users want, what readers want. It all seems to be overdetermined by, like, what do Facebook and Google want? And not even, like, Facebook as, a, like, a social media platform. What does the corporate leadership of Facebook want to see in a website? Oh, I think what it's do more Google, like, what is the algorithm? Right, what is the algorithm? Yeah. Right. But that's very much not what the internet was like a decade no, ago. Do you remember? That? I didn't know what the algorithm was a decade I, ago. I used to type in URLs and go to yeah. websites, right, for fun. Totally. I still do imagine that. having fun on the internet. <laughs> imagine having fun on the internet. Yeah, and I I don't really go to blogs anymore because blogs don't really exist anymore. Like I also used to get my music from MP3 blogs. Do you remember those? I, of course, I probably come dating on. myself. Come on now. <laughs> and now I get it from Spotify. Right. And on Spotify is, again, another platform that really grew into the idea of like suggesting things to you mm-hmm. and playlisting things for you. You could be consuming music. You could be consuming news. And it does feel like we have become slaves to the algorithm. But the algorithm, like I said, the algorithm is just a euphemism for like a handful of big tech companies. That's all the algorithm really means. And so I... It feels like there are these levels of alienation that are always growing between users of a given platform and, like, the leadership of those platforms or the algorithm. And I don't know how you solve for that. And I certainly don't know how you solve for, like, how do you found a successful media company that isn't just... Right, that isn't, right, that isn't basically, like playing basketball against Mark Zuckerberg as a business model. I think the the answer to your question is that we should just do our best to bring blogs back. Honestly, Kate, I'm over blogs. You know what I'm into? I'm into podcasting. This is a podcast. I'm into podcasting. I question your commitment to podcasting. You were talking about blogs. I think you can like more than one thing. <laughs> I'm going to blog about podcasting. Oh. Circle the square or whatever the expression is. Square Square the circle. circle. Okay. (laughs) All right. I'm Justin Charity. I'm Kate Nibbs. This has been Damage Control. Thank you for listening. You'll hear from us again in two weeks. Bye.